Now, we have an exciting morning still ahead of us because Andrew Bunt is going to come and speak to us. Andrew is part of the uh, leadership team uh, at King's Church in Hastings and Bexhill, based in Bexhill. Uh, he's a speaker, a writer with Living Out. He studied theology at Durham University. Just wait if any of this is wrong, Andrew. Uh, King's College London. He loves helping people understand and apply the Bible. Loves wrestling with big cultural issues. Uh, he's written books as well. Uh, Who in heaven's name do you think you are? And people, not pronouns, reflections on transgender experience. And you may have written some more since then, so please feel free to mention those as well. Uh, but why don't we give Andrew a big welcome. We're really blessed to have him here. We might not buy. I was at a conference this week and there were two speakers. I was introduced like that, lovely. The other guy was introduced to all these amazing things like scuba diving. I'm like, I need something exciting and interesting in my bio to compete with scuba diving, but all those things are true. Um, it's really lovely to, to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to uh, get to be with you in person. We often pray for you in Hastings. We're very fond of you. We're all kind of part of the church of ours, good friends of ours. So it's lovely to actually be here to see your lovely faces. And I'm really pleased to be taking part in this beginning series. It sounds like such a good thing or two. You're going to the beginning and the end of the Bible, looking at some really key topics. And today we've got a key topic to look at, the topic of men and women. And particularly the key question we're going to seek to tackle together is what does it mean to be a man or a woman? And you might think that sounds like a really simple question, we can answer that really easily. But my observation actually is if you ask many people that question, actually we don't find it so easy to answer. And of course if we think more broadly about the world around us, that's a very contested question in our culture. The question of what it means to be a man or a woman actually is hugely controversial in our culture. Just one thing that illustrates that quite nicely. Think of last year and some comments that Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, made, and this big debate that emerged about what it means to be a woman. Because Keir Starmer said in an interview or something, it's not right to say that only women have a service. And it started this huge debate in the media about what does it mean to actually be a woman. It seems the question of what it means to be a man or a woman actually isn't quite so easy to ask. It's hugely debated and discussed in our culture. But also it's a very real life topic, isn't it? It's a real life topic that will hit home for many of us. And this will be a real question in many of our own lives in various different ways. For some of us, we might experience a significant disconnect between who others seem to think we are as a man or woman, and who we've been told we are, and what our body seems to say, actually how we feel ourselves to be. Some people experience a, a very real, genuine sense of disconnect between what their body seems to be saying about who they are as a man or woman, and actually how they feel themselves internally. Such people might identify as transgender, they might be diagnosed with gender dysphoria, the distress that can come from that kind of extreme disconnect, and for some people that's a really real question, a really real experience, and so this question is really important. For others of us, we might not experience such a serious sense of disconnect, but many people, it seems, experience some level of discomfort over our identity as a man or woman. A sense of not quite making the cut, of sense of not quite being a real man, not quite being a real woman. A lot of us, it seems, live with a low-level sense of, do I really fit in with the guys, or do I really fit in with the girls? Discomfort around whether we're a man or a woman can be a very common experience for many of us. And there's another real-life practical thing here, actually, is discipleship. 
For any of us who are disciples of Jesus, the question what does it mean to be a man or woman is really important because it links to how do we faithfully follow Jesus? How do we live out who we are in a way that honours him? And any of us who are followers of Jesus want to do that. Discomfort, discipleship are all reasons why for many of us, what if every one of us in some way, this will be a very real life thing. And that's certainly been my experience. My experience is having a bit of experience of the disconnect and of the discomfort. There was a time in my childhood when I very much believed that even though everyone told me I was a boy and I seemed to be a boy, my body seemed to just I was a boy, I really believed internally I was a girl. I remember acutely this kind of fear that someday my big secret would be found out that actually I was a girl trapped in a boy's body. That was a very weird experience for me for a period of my childhood. And as I grew up and went through teenage years, that feeling actually went away kind of of its own accord. But I did still live for years with this sense of not really making the cut as a real man, not really fitting in with the guys. And I look back now and I notice I used to say things like, oh, he would say that, he's a guy. Which is clearly saying the guys are over here and I'm over here in some other group. Stag dudes were literally my worst nightmare. And to be honest, I harbored this secret desire that my female friends would invite me to a hen party. I basically wanted to be with the girls. I felt much safer with the girls than I did the guys. But actually, I found the Bible has wonderfully good news on what it means to be a man or woman, wonderfully freeing truth that's helped me to embrace the fact that I'm a man, but also embrace the fact that lots of things I like and lots of ways I am, frankly, are quite traditionally feminine, and that's okay. And my experience travelling around, talking about this quite a lot, is lots of us do that level of, or a level of discomfort over whether we really make the cut as a man or woman. And I think the Bible's got such good news for us. So let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to Genesis and ask this question, what does it mean to be a man or a woman? And Genesis 1 is so, so helpful here. The key verses are the sixth day of creation, the creation of humanity, of you and I. And we're going to read just a few of those, starting from verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing, that moves on the earth. Two really important truths emerge in this passage, particularly in verse 27. Two things are placed in parallel about humans, about you and I, that we're created in the image of God and we're created male and female. First of all, we're created in the image of God. That means that there's something special and unique about humans. That's only said about humans. It's only said about you and I, not about any other part of the creative world that God has made. And notice also that's said first. It's the first thing said about humans. This is the most important thing. It's more important than the fact that we're male and female, is that we are made in the image of God. And there's lots of debate of what that actually means, lots of discussion around that, but I think when you look at other references later in Scripture, it seems to be talking about some sort of unspecified family resemblance between us and God. It's not specified in what way we're like God, but in some ways we are like God, and that's what it means. And Scripture shows us that means that we have inherent worth, and we have value, and we have a right to life. Every living human being has, bears the image of God, 
that scripture shows that gives our worth value. It gives us uh, worth. It means we have the right to life. Genesis 9 and James 3 would be the particular places that would show that. And so notice that equality, our worth, our value, our right to life, our being totally equal, is highlighted and stressed before anything is said about our difference as men and women. That's really important to note that. Men and women are completely equal in worth, in value, in right to life. And actually that's a belief that's widely held in our culture, and really that's because of Genesis 1. Look around the world, look around historic cultures, the belief that men and women are inherently equal does not come naturally to humans. Actually, the reason we live in a culture that believes that is because of the legacy influence of biblical teaching. The image of God is the ground and basis for the fact that men and women are fundamentally equal. And this image is a given identity. So it's not that you begin to have the image of God when you do something. You don't kind of create it through performance. You don't enact it and bring it into being. The image of God is given to us. God says that we are creating his image. It's all rooted in how he's made us. It's all rooted in what he says about us. It's a given, solid, static identity. So the image of God is the first thing we're told here. But then also we're told that humanity are created male and female. It's also a really important thing. It said right up there, for the first chapter of the Bible, one of the first things we're told about. And it's striking to notice we are, of course, not unique as male or female. In the sense of animals, lots of creatures are male and female as well. And the author of Genesis knows that. Genesis 6, he'll say that when talking about the flood story and the animals there. But he doesn't say it here. Only of humans is it noted that we are male or female. There's something being highlighted as important. And our being created male and female is placed in parallel with our being created in the image of God. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And that's really important and really helpful because it's pointing out to us that in the same way the image of God is a given identity. It's true of us because of how God has made us. He gives it to us. He speaks it over us. In the same way, our identity as male or female is given to us by God. It's not something that becomes true as we enact it. It's not something we create or we perform into reality. It's something that is true because it is given to us. God declares us to be male or female through how he makes us what he says over us. That means that nothing can change that. It's a solid, static, given identity. The question of course becomes, well, in what way does God give us the identity of being male or female? How is that communicated? How is that given and here, helpfully, both the Bible and science agree, and that's just a helpful thing to notice, that actually what the Bible says is backed up by science. So the Bible and science both tell us, what does it mean to be male or female? Fundamentally, it's a bodily thing. God gives that identity in our body. And particularly, it's about the direction in which the reproductive system points, the way the reproductive system works. That's the way you classify males or females. And the Bible indicates that. Do you notice, verse 26, God speaks about the human mission, this mission to have dominion over the fish and the birds, the livestock, the creeping things. Then verse 27, you get the image of God and you get male and female. And verse 28 comes back to that same commission to have dominion, do all this stuff. But before he repeats that, first God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That bit wasn't in verse 26, but it is in verse 28. What's happened in the middle? The male and female. 
Male and female naturally flows into the command to be fruitful and uh, go and fill the earth because to be male or female means to have a certain body with certain with a, whose body points in a certain way in our reproductive systems. The Bible is saying that it's our bodies that in, through which God communicates to us that we're male or female, and specifically our reproductive system. Hence, it feeds straight into the command to procreate and to fill the earth in that way. The Bible says that, and hopefully science supports that. Scientifically speaking, the only binary basis for classifying people as male or female is the direction of and the, uh, the way that our reproductive system works. There's no other way you can delineate male or females clearly into two groups in humanity. The brain doesn't work. There are potential differences between male and female brains, but they're kind of on a bell curve, as in they're kind of lesser and greater similarities. There's not a clear binary. You can't look at a brain and say, that is a female brain, that is a male brain. They don't split in two in that kind of way. There are two kind of types. In biology, across the board, it's recognised that it's reproductive systems that mark male and female across the board, across species and stuff. If you want to get really technical, it goes right down to gametes, to sex cells, that actually females produce relatively large sex cells in relatively small numbers, that's eggs in humans. Males produce relatively small sex cells in relatively large numbers, that's sperm in humans, and everything else really flows from that. In human bodies, our hormones then kick in and produce lots of other differences between male and female bodies. The important point to get is the Bible tells us there's nothing bodily about being a man or woman, Actually, science says the same. It's the only way to classify two different types of human. But that might raise some questions for us, good questions we should just think through. We might ask, actually, if it's so much rooted in our body and our reproductive system and the way our reproductive system points, what about those of us who don't have children? Or what about those of us who maybe know we're unable to have children? Well, the important point to point out is it's not about having children. This is about the direction in which the body God has given us points, the way it's kind of structured, the way it has the potentiality to be involved in producing children, even if that never happens. So what I'm not saying, and the Bible is not saying, is actually having children is what clearly shows us as either a man or a woman. That's not what's going on. But also, you might understand if you're thinking, but actually, aren't there some conditions called intersex conditions? or differences of sexual development, DSDs, would actually disprove the idea that we even are men or women, male or female. Isn't there actually different forms of this, different ways uh, that people can be embodied? And it is true that there's this uh, a small number of very rare conditions called intersex or DSDs, where people's bodies exhibit some level of variation from the expected norm, the expected pattern for a male or female. But it's important to know that in the vast, vast majority of cases, it's still very clear that someone is either male or is female. There's just a slight variation in some element of their physical embodiment. There are also very, very rare cases. It's kind of a tiny percentage of the already tiny percentage where somebody seems to exhibit a genuine blend of the two sexes. The body actually can exhibit both female and male characteristics. But that isn't that there are three sexes or more than three sexes. It's not that we're not male or female. There's actually the two sexes are blended in one body. And importantly, it's not that we're men and women and another or many other things, because actually there's no third gamete, there's no third sex cell, there's no third reproductive structure that can work to produce children. We are male and female, just in some very rare cases, actually those two things get brought together in one. So what that means is those things don't undermine what the Bible teaches us, supported by science, 
that what it means to be male or female or man or woman is to have a body with a reproductive system that points in a certain direction. <coughs> that might seem relatively simple on its own, but then of course we think about our culture we're living in, and this sharply, sharply contrasts with some views that are very common and popular in our culture. We live in a culture where bodies in general are pretty insignificant. Bodies, if anything, are a slight annoyance really in our culture. What really matters is what inside. Who you really are is what you find inside. That's the real you, your true self that you need to be authentic to. We're told in our culture that who you are inside is the real you. And that's what really matters. And therefore, if you feel inside that actually you're a man or woman, that is who you are. Many people in our culture would define women as someone who feels like a woman. And man, as someone who feels like a man, regardless of what the body says, who cares about the body? What happens here is there's a separation between the body, what we might call biological sex, and what people call gender identity, one's internal felt sense of self. So the body might say one thing, that doesn't really matter, but what matters is what's your gender identity? Inside, how is it you feel yourself to be? Who is it you feel yourself to be? And so people would say, well, just because you're born with and a certain type of body doesn't dictate who you actually are. And what happens here is you get this split between body and internal self, and often in the culture we're living in, you also get a split of language as well. And the language of male and female is reserved for the body and biological sex, and the language of man and woman becomes who you are inside. So you can be born with a male body, uh, but actually you feel inside yourself to be a woman, and so you actually are a woman. Or you could be born with a female body, but you feel yourself to be a man, and so you are a man. The body is kind of largely disregarded, and who we are inside is what's important. But there are some kind of problems with this view. If we define, for example, women as what it means, what it feels to be a woman, like a woman, sorry, a woman as someone who feels they are a woman, what does it mean to feel like a woman? How can we actually define and explain what it means to feel like a woman? Actually, you can't define a word by using a word. To say a man is someone who feels like a man is circular. You see how it has no meaning, because what does it mean to feel like a man? You can't define it by using the word. Actually, these things are fun fundamentally meaningless if we say it's what we feel and what it feels like. We might say actually a man is someone who feels like they match the stereotypes, the expectations of a man, but again, you've got the same problem, a kind of circular thing. We can't define a word with a word. This really doesn't work. Actually, when we start separating the body and who we really are, when we start separating male and female as body, but man and woman is who you feel inside and who you really are, we get some real problems. But actually, I think Jesus has some real answers here. So maybe to our surprise, Jesus, I think, answers this question by showing that actually male and female and man and woman go together. There's this little episode in the Gospels where the Pharisees come to Jesus. They're testing him, they want to catch him out, they want to get him in trouble, they don't like him, they're trying to show him up. And so, recorded in Matthew 19, they come and they talk to him about divorce. They think, we're going to pick one of the thorniest, most difficult issues in their culture to catch Jesus out on and they ask him this question about divorce. And they use the Old Testament law and try and catch him out on that. But what's really interesting is Jesus goes back to the beginning, like we are in this series, goes back right to Genesis, back to Genesis 1, back to Genesis 2. And he quotes two verses, one from Genesis 1, verse 27, and one from Genesis 2, verse 25, which I think shows that Jesus knows that our body is linked to our identity 
that actually males are men and females are women. Listen to how he uses the language of male and female and the language of man and woman when he's speaking to the Pharisees, Matthew 19. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, which woman in the Hebrew, and the two shall become one flesh. See what Jesus is doing. God's creators, male and female, Genesis 1.27, which we've seen is a really bodily thing. It flows into that command to have children, to be fruitful, to multiply. He says, because we're male and female, a man will leave his father and will hold fast to his wife, or literally to his woman. Jesus is saying to be a male or female is to be a man or woman. They're the same thing. They flow into Genesis 1.27. is flowing into that verse about marriage in Genesis 2.25. He's showing us actually separating male and female as a bodily thing from man and woman as an eternal thing just doesn't really work. That's not how God's designed it. That's not how God's created it. Actually, to have a male body is to be a man, to have a female body is to be a woman. So that, I think, if we go back to the beginning, is what Genesis is showing us, and Jesus affirms that what it means to be a man or woman. It really is, it boils down to the body that God has given us, this given identity communicated to us in that. But if we're honest, that's not really the question we're all that bothered about, is it? We ask the question, what does it mean to be a man or woman? The question we really care about is, what does it mean to live as a man or woman? How should we respond to the fact that we're a man or woman? How do we actually live that out? What happens there? Should men and women live differently? Does God call us to do that? And if we're honest, Genesis 1 doesn't have a lot to say about that. The foundational understanding Genesis 1 lays down of what it means to be a man and woman becomes the foundation for what the rest of Scripture says, but it in itself doesn't have much to say. So we need to skip ahead a little bit and look at a few other places in Scripture to see what it says here. What does it mean to live as a man and woman? How are we meant to live and are we meant to live differently? Which well, far as I can see in Scripture, there were only two parameters laid down, only two things said to us about how we men and women should look differently because of the fact we are men and women. We've not got time to unpack them in detail, but let me just summarize them to you. One thing the Bible seems to say is that men and women, we should live differently in our ex external appearance, in the sense of our external appearance should communicate to other people that we are either a man or woman. Our identity in that way should be observable to others and we shouldn't seek to cause people to think that we are of the other sex. I think that's indicated by passages like Deuteronomy 22, 5, the prohibition of cross-dressing. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, a really confusing, difficult passage on head coverings, but a kind of principle everyone agrees is in the text is the importance of the distinction between male and female and some sort of visible picture of it. We're to present our external appearance, whether we're a man or a woman. And of course, if we're honest, the bodies God is giving us gives us a head start on them. Secondary sex characteristics, basically breasts and beards, give us a head start on showing whether we are a man or a woman. And I should say a side note, that doesn't mean guys have to have a beard. I once did this talk and someone was very concerned if they shave. It's okay to shave. But the point is, God has given us bodies which actually allow us to indicate and present externally whether we are a man or a woman. And then we're called to, as it were, continue that through how we dress, how we style our clothes and stuff, to uh, use the parameters that our culture gives to how we get to express that to the world around us. 
That's one thing Scripture seems to say about what it means to live as a man or woman. Another thing is Scripture says there are different roles for men and women in the context of marriage relationships, husbands and wives, and also in context of church leadership, with eldership uh, being male. Beyond that, I can't see any parameters in Scripture as to why there are differences between men and women and how we should live. And even those that are there, things like actually the different roles in marriage and different roles in church leadership are not about relative worth or value or even about ability. Actually, they're about a different story Scripture is telling through the sexes, which you know, we've got time to unpack in detail. But remember the image of God. It doesn't mean there's inherently different value between men and women. But God has created a story through different roles given to men and women in those contexts. I can't see anything else in Scripture saying about how we should live differently as men or There are some, what we might call sexed instructions, instructions given specifically to men or specifically to women, but when you kind of look at them and think about them, they're just specific examples of general things that all of us elsewhere in Scripture are told to embody and to live out. They just happen to be applied for various reasons, specifically to men or women in those contexts. So if you think about it, that gives us a lot of freedom. There's those few small parameters in how we express who we are, but beyond that, actually, we've got freedom just to be comfortable with how we are. And that's rooted in Genesis 1.27. If our identity as a man or woman is given to us by God, it's something we receive from God, not something we have to create or we have to earn or we have to perform, then it makes sense that we can receive that identity and that gives us the freedom to embrace how we are. You see, when you receive who you are as a man or woman from God, you can embrace your personality and your preferences, your likes, your dislikes, your characteristics. You can embrace those just as how you are. They don't change who you are. It doesn't matter if you match up with what's normally expected of what a guy is like or what a girl is like. That's not what it means to be a man or woman. Knowing who we are in that given identity gives us the freedom to be how we are. And that's the truth that, for me, has been so helpful. I shared with you how for years I didn't, I did, I felt this sense of not living up to the expectations of being a man, not quite making the cut, not fitting in as a real man. Actually, when I realised that no, Genesis one twenty seven means I am a man because God says I'm a man. God's given me that identity; it's given to me in my body. Nothing can change. I am a man. Therefore, actually, the fact that lots of my likes and my dislikes, and my personality, are quite traditionally feminine, not masculine, doesn't matter. I've been able to embrace my deep love of Downton Abbey, of musicals and of pretty things, and that doesn't change the fact I'm a man. It doesn't matter that I hate sport and beer and I'm not particularly interested in steak. I'm a man because God says I'm a man. I know who I am, so I'm free to be how I am. This is why the Bible's teaching on this is such good news. We live in a culture that thinks the Bible's teaching is constrictive and oppressive and hurtful in this. Actually, it's wonderfully, wonderfully free. God tells you who you are and gives that to you, which gives you the freedom to be how you are. And this naturally will make us think of gender stereotypes, which is one of those things I've just been hinting at there. Stereotypes are like those kind of uh, fixed, simplistic ideas about what it means to be a man or a woman. And it's easy just to say gender stereotypes are wrong and we should throw them all out and get rid of them. They're just you know, getting it in the way, they're just a pain. But actually, I've come to think, I think more actually, we need to keep them in their place. It's not that we throw them out wholesale, we need to keep gender stereotypes in their place, recognising what they are and what they aren't. Because sometimes stereotypes do represent the statistical majority. 
They're there for a reason. I think a majority of men are in a certain way, or women in a certain way, but not everyone. And there's some help for something helpful sometimes in statistical majorities. But we need to remember to carefully keep stereotypes in their place. Two ways we do that. One is to remember these stereotypes are often true, but they're not always true. Stereotypes are generalizations, they're not universal. So they might describe the majority, they're never going to describe everyone. And that's really important to keep in mind because actually the risk is that we take what's often true and we say or we imply that it should always be true. That's when you get a problem. Because then those of us for whom they're not true begin to think, oh, so what about me? I don't fit in that box. Does that mean I'm not a man? Does that mean I'm not a woman? We need to keep them in their place, remembering they are often true, but they're not always true. And linked to that, we need to remember that stereotypes are descriptive, not prescriptive. Stereotypes are observations, not guidelines. So the observations of how things often are, they're not instructions or guidelines of how things actually need to be. And again, we need to be really careful about that. Not to imply that things we might observe as being quite common among men or common among women are actually things people should live out, things people should live up to. Because again, if we do that, many of us find we don't, and that causes us questions, that causes us problems. Or it causes people to feel they need to try and fit in. They need to take this instruction what it needs to be a man, and actually live in the very uncomfortable situation of trying to live in a sort of way that doesn't really kind of match with actually how God has made them and why. And so stereotypes need to be handled very carefully. That means we need to watch our words. We need to watch our jokes. It's often a place where stereotypes come up. Watch events we run. It's a really interesting one for churches. Watch our parenting, actually, is a place as well. It's our interaction with kids. And make sure we're not imposing gender stereotypes as instructions unhelpful. Stereotypes, we don't check them all out, maybe, but we want to keep them in their place. But that helps us all to enjoy that wonderful freedom of received identity, knowing who I am, give me the freedom to be how I am. So how does all this help us in real practical terms? Think about those three groups I talked about earlier, the three real life impacts this might have on anyone. What about first, how does everything we've said here from scripture impact those and relate to those who experience that quite significant disconnect? between maybe what their body says and they feel themselves to be. What does this say to those who might uh, identify as trans, who might experience gender dysphoria? Well, this is only part of a Christian response to transgender experience and to the experience of gender dysphoria. It is a part, it is an important part, because really at the heart of transgender experience comes the question, who am I when my body and my internal self disagree? That's really the fundamental question when it comes to trans. And we've seen that scripture says, and it's actually backed up by science, that who we are is communicated to us in the body that God has given us. Who we are as a man or woman is dictated by the body has given, God has given us. That's what we might call a, a head response, how we do the thinking about the key question at the heart of transgender experience. But a Christian response that only does that is not, I don't think, really actually a true Christian response. That's not enough for us to say as Christians the world. We also, as Christians, when it comes to trans, need to have a heart response. A heart response of genuine love and welcome to trans people or gender-questioning people. A heart that seeks to actually think our way into understanding the experience, rather than just dismissing it as something we don't understand or don't think is there, but actually seeking to get to know what might it be like to live with the pain of gender dysphoria? What might it be like to live with that sense of distress about one's embodiment? 
and to express a genuine compassion and care for those who are experiencing that distressing, painful situation. We need a heart response and also a head response. But also, I think a final step, we need a hope response. Actually, what we're saying here is we have some people who live with a significant level of distress, of suffering, really. And actually, we then need to ask, well, what can we bring into that context? How are we uniquely equipped by the scriptures to help people to face and to handle suffering? Suffering which maybe, as for many of us in different areas of life we experience, maybe will continue all of this life. We need all three of those, I think, to get a truly rounded response on this. And that is only a very quick whistle sort of all that, so I will do a shameless plug for my little booklet, Be Painful, Not Pronouns, Reflections of Transgender Experience, which walks through that Christian response of a heart response, a head response, a hope response, to actually how do we have a, a full-bodied Christian engagement with and response to transgender experience. You can get online and places. And also, I just want to say, if, if that is you, if you're here today and you experience that kind of disconnect, I'm just so thrilled that you're here. Thank you so much for sitting, so much for listening to what I've said. And my hope and prayer for you is actually you know right now God's love, God's comfort. And I know that the guys who call this church home would so love to chat with you, to get to know you, to hear your stories. If that is you, don't leave here without talking to someone and finding out more. Or maybe actually you've got a close family member, a close friend for whom this is such real life stuff. Likewise, don't miss on the chance just to talk with someone, to share your experience of that, to receive support and have people walk alongside you. you know? For some people, there's that disconnect. And this biblical teacher, I think, can be so helpful there. For many of us, there's that discomfort. I don't quite make the cut. I don't feel like fitting with the guys or with the girls. We've already said, actually, how wonderfully freeing this biblical truth is. Knowing who we are gives us the freedom to be how we are. It takes the pressure of needing to live up to those stereotypes, actually, with those two little parameters in line of expressing uh, our biological sex in how we present different roles if we're married or revolt in church leadership. We've then got the freedom to be how we are. There's wonderful freeing truth here for those of us who experience that discomfort. And what about discipleship? What about how do we as faithful as followers of Jesus, how do we seek to faithfully live out our identity as a man or a woman? Well, while there's two parameters, I think are part of Christian faithfulness, that thing of externally presenting uh, who we are, and that thing of taking on different roles in marriage or in church. But beyond that, there's a lot of freedom. That's so actually what I think is helpful really to point out here about discipleship, is the call that God gives to us primarily is to become Christ-like. Actually, my observation in kind of the, the biblical manhood and womanhood movement, as it's been called, which has talked lots about differences between men and women, my observation is not only is that movement tended to overread scripture and frankly to make stereotypes and instructions, but also actually it's just kind of taking us off course as if being a man or woman is more important than being Christ-like. And frankly, as far as I can see, the emphasis of scripture is live out your biological sex in these little ways, enjoy the freedom beyond that, and most importantly, seek to become like Christ. So this is an important question, but also I kind of want to say, historically among Christians, it's become a distracting question. Let's not get distracted from being like Christ, becoming like him. And so I'd love to close actually by praying that he would help us to do that and to respond to this truth. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much that you have made us in your image, that we are like you, for the wonderful worth and value that we have because of that. 
And we thank you you've made each one of us to be either male or to be female. I think that's an identity given to us, a good gift from you. And that we can receive that, and by receiving that, have the wonderful freedom to be who we are with all the diversity and difference that you have created in uh, people and in us as your church. And we pray, Lord, please help us to embrace who we are in you and to enjoy that freedom that comes with it. Please help us, Lord, to embrace that call to be Christ-like. Above anything else, we want to become like you. We pray, Lord, would you help us to pursue that and put all our hearts into that. And we pray, Lord, for those for whom this is a very real life issue, for those who maybe experience that discomfort and those, Lord, who experience that really significant disconnect. We pray, Lord, that we might be people who are good at listening to people, good at understanding their stories, good at welcoming and loving, and good, Lord, ultimately at pointing every person to you and your love for them. Lord, we pray, would you equip us for that? Would you shape our hearts to be like you in that? Yes. Spirit of God, would you do these things in us, we ask. Amen. 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 Amen.